Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Mo Collins, the CEO of Entrepreneurial Communities. Entrepreneurial Communities is a new economy consultancy that helps communities understand their entrepreneurial ecosystems. I had the great pleasure of working with Mo for about the past year as we did a deep dive into the Nevada ecosystem. We looked at the northern part of the state, the southern part of the state, the rural part of the state, and the state as a whole. And in this podcast, we discuss the methodology, the findings, and the actionable insights that were gained as a result of the report. This is really a deep dive into the state of entrepreneurship in Nevada, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Mo, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. It's good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. I was really excited about the opportunity to chat with you. I, it's been so fun to work with you over the past year and just really happy that we get a chance to talk a little bit more about the work we've done together over the past uh, year or so. I totally agree. Thank you for having me, Doug. Yeah. So for listeners, uh, Mo it, Collins is the CEO and owner of Entrepreneurial Communities. It's a new economy consultancy. And she and I got to work together on a project which created the Nevada's first ever statewide ecosystem report. We're going to talk a lot about that. But before we do that, Mo, could you just give us a little bit about your background? How did you get a new economy consultant, uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem building? I think you were doing ecosystem building before it was a thing. So maybe you can give us a little bit of your background. That's fairly true, actually. Yes, I've had a consultancy for the past decade serving states, communities, small rural communities in building out ecosystems. And that's been a terrific consultancy for us. We operate out of the upper Midwest and build teams to deliver services throughout the states where we do our work. Prior to entrepreneurial communities, I served as in a senior administrative role at the University of Northern Iowa in the upper Midwest. And I was in charge of entrepreneurship, um, economic development for the state. When I was offered the position, my department had said to me, Namo, we want you to move the needle on entrepreneurship. I don't care how you do it, as long as you raise your own money and you don't embarrass me. I did really well with the raise your own money part. I raised between a million and a million and a half a year in support of entrepreneurial activity, oftentimes uh, tied to technology innovation. So we built five or six different pieces of technology that were allowing us to serve entrepreneurs outside of the realm of the university's kind of parameters across the state, three of which were licensed and scaled to other universities. And I embarrassed him all the time. So that was that. Uh, 17 years I served at UNI in a variety of capacities. I was the SBDC director. I was the director of technology transfer entrepreneurship outreach. We ran two business incubators, a co-working space. Anything else we could think of that was cool and interesting to beta test in the state of Iowa and beyond, we did. So it was a remarkable time, a terrific experience. And at the time in 2014, when I left, it was because I was doing more meetings than I was work with entrepreneurs and with ecosystem builders. And I felt like we could contribute better outside the framework of a university in that environment. And so Entrepreneurial Communities was born from that idea that we could contribute at a level that was higher, richer, deeper, maybe more in the field and a little faster, a little more nimble than what we can often be in a university environment. And it's been a terrific run, terrific. 
Well, which is, you know, I was just thinking you started entrepreneurial communities, you know, just about a year after I joined Edon. So I've been here now almost 11 years. So I think I joined in 2013. And, you know, when we started doing ecosystem building back then, they didn't even actually know what to call it. I think that the term ecosystem builder was coined probably around that time or a little bit after, I, you know, I don't know who, who gets to take credit for that one. Maybe somebody at Kaufman, Andy or somebody, but uh, it's been quite a thing to not only just to educate the world, but also to, you know, put language around and legitimize the profession of supporting entrepreneurship. I mean, I think that it's, I still run into this all the time. It's misunderstood. People don't really recognize all the different components that go into it and how important it is to, you know, support entrepreneurs in your community. So it's, we've been doing it for a long time and it, yet it still feels like it's one of those things that people don't really understand or recognize its value. If you think about that though, Doug, we didn't really have an economy being driven by technology innovation until around 2000. So the whole the whole field is new because everything and every part of it is new. So everything we've learned, we've really learned in the last 20 years. So it's a, an exciting field. It's disruptive. We've changed so much about economic development and then everything else that comes along with that. So I kind of feel as though we're the first generation of folks that did this good work and bringing along our constituency is part of our job. And I think you do that every day. I've seen you do that, in fact. I appreciate that. And you've gotten a chance to look under the hood probably more than anybody has in the, the 11 years. You know, I hadn't really considered that, that how quickly things innovated and changed. And that was kind of driving the need for it. So, you know, let me ask you a question. This is one of those things that seems obvious, but not so much when you actually get into it. Like, how do you define an entrepreneur? There's a lot of conversation around what an entrepreneur is. I've had so many different perspectives. We might as well get one more on here. You know, as I do, that this is a very controversial subject. And it's been around and argued and debated for the last 20 years. There was a time period when early in this whole technology innovation phase that we all believed that entrepreneurs were solely the Silicon Valley types, folks that were finding new technology innovations, applying them to an industry and reaping the rewards of disruptive um, types of, of activity. And that's true. Those are entrepreneurs. But over time, we've come to realize that an entire economy our economies are being built and changed and altered as a result of entrepreneurs and not just those entrepreneurs. And today, my opinion and that of many in this space is that everyone who starts a business is an entrepreneur. We're all going through the same types of, of activities. We're, we're learning about leadership. We're learning how to hire people and fire people. We're learning how to invoice and understand a cash flow. We're learning how to do market opportunity and market analysis. Whether you're a home-based side gig hustle or you are a technology entrepreneur or an early stage venture company rolling out of a university. And so in Kaufman, in their own reports, define an entrepreneur as anyone who takes part in these activities. And I ascribe to that. But I also would say that there's so many different kinds of entrepreneurs that we have to have a way to categorize them. We have to have a way to say, well, this is an entrepreneur, but they contribute in a different way than another entrepreneur. But we would all agree that a home-based business does not contribute to the economy in the same way that a technology startup does, right? So somehow we have to have a framework around which to have those conversations about who is an entrepreneur, what do they contribute, and then finding ways to 
address their unique needs in a way that allow them to contribute in the very best way they can to our economy. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I really like where they're going with, you know, the right to start organization and the idea of like, we're all starters. And we are, you know, it's our right to pursue our entrepreneurial dreams. And also, it makes sense to like, look at, you know, especially if you're looking at it from an economic development lens, or, you know, a broad, how do entrepreneurs affect your economy? And what do they need for support? They have different needs based on what type of businesses they're creating. And then also, you know, from a policy and systems perspective, like how do you allocate resources and create programs and systems to support entrepreneurs at different stages? And that's been one of those things that I think has been really important in economic development. You know, we've had to create a few dividing lines, as it were, like we only work with primary companies at Edon. And so that's companies that generate more than half the revenue outside the state. It's not a value judgment of the amazing entrepreneurs that are restaurants and, you know, that, that do home-based businesses, all of that adds to our economy. But, you know, when we have limited choices about time and resources, we have to work on the ones that drive the more, the larger economic impact on a kind of a per unit basis. So again, not a value judgment. I mean, entrepreneurs helped remake Midtown and that's almost all restaurants and bars and, you know, light and art and all of those things are amazing that parts of the fabric. And also, you know, the employers that are driving, you know, with tech-based or manufacturing-based, those are the ones that are bringing in all those jobs. So it's, yeah, it's, I think that's a great delineation and I appreciate that. So, you know, as you think about that, I mean, we worked together, we got a grant from the governor's office and the idea was how can we get a kind of a window into what's going on in the state of Nevada from an entrepreneurial ecosystem standpoint across kind of the in, the broad spectrum. So not just looking at startup scale-up, but looking at microenterprise, rural businesses, startup uh, you know, spin-outs out of the universities, kind of taking a, a deep dive into the state of Nevada from four ecosystem perspectives, right? From the state level, from the Northern Nevada lens, from the Southern Nevada lens, and from the rural Thankfully, you you responded to our RFP <laughs> and you got a chance to work with us. So tell me a little bit about the project from your perspective. Like what were some of your thoughts and initially and kind of love to hear some of your what you've taken away. I know this is, we'll, we'll dive deep into this. We were ecstatic to be selected to do this work in Nevada. And the enormity of the project was not to be understated in any way. We, in essence, did four kind of tidy ecosystem assessments, one of the entire state of Nevada, one for the, the Reno region, one for Las Vegas, and then this kind of all-encompassing what's happening in rural Nevada. And if you start to break that down in any state, what you find is ecosystems are local, they're hyper-local. And so every one of these four topical areas that we were studying and researching were unique in of themselves with their own assets. They could almost be separate islands, separate states because of the differences in education, in internet, in industry clusters, in the kinds of culture and the assets that existed in all of those regions. And so it was a delightful experience. It was exceedingly rich in kind of ferreting out all of the, the unique assets of each region and the people and the kinds of needs that were existing in those areas. But I think at the end of the day, it was one of the most rewarding projects that we have done. 
you know, I, I was on the selection committee and the thing that really stood out for me about your proposal was your commitment to interview so many people. I think, you know, one of the things that you said that really resonated with me is ecosystems are hyper-local. And I don't think you can really get a flavor for what's going on in an ecosystem unless you really go talk to the stakeholders at length and get in there and really get, you know, get a feeling for what's going on. So that that was one of those things. And and you did that. I think you ended up talking with a couple hundred people or more in, in the state of Nevada. And I think you, you know, it's impossible to turn over every stone, but I think you turned over more stones and found more silver and gold. I know that's kind of cheesy, but <laughs> than anybody just, I learned so much from the conversations, but I just, I guess what I'm saying is I really appreciated the approach. And I think it aligns with that ethos, right? You talked with people across the entrepreneurial stack. Let me talk about that just a bit, because I think it, it gives flavor to the findings that resulted in this plan, which is 101 pages of a lot of data, a lot of qualitative information kind of in between the pages and what we believe to be some very actionable recommendations across those four sectors. But our approach is really tied to, first and foremost, using big data and good data. We know that the Census Bureau has terrific numbers. We know that there are a lot of different databases that are used in the economic development field that are are important, that provide really good information. But we also know that in ecosystems, there's a lot of information that's overlooked that we have not learned to collect very well. One example of that is churn. The number of businesses that start in any given year is compared to the number of businesses that exit in any given year. And when you compare that and you run ratios on that, you can see on a very high level basis, but you can see when there might be gaps in the ecosystem for particular services or resources like capital or technical assistance or even networking. And you can also see when the level of innovation in a community goes up or down or up or down because of people who are excited about starting businesses and start them. So a comparison of those numbers and then tracking those numbers over time is really important. And there's only one data course that we can find that kind of year over year um, aggregate information. And so we believe that in ecosystem building, you have to start with not only the good data from Census Bureau and American Community Surveys, but also Kauffman Foundation and Your Economy and other resource providers like GoDaddy's new venture program that allow us a richer, deeper look based upon the resources we have available to us to capture good data and then build that into um, an understanding of what's happening in that ecosystem. It's the first thing. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you, one of the inherent challenges of ecosystem building is measuring it, right? Like the metrics to track and manage ecosystems are inherently complicated. I think that, you know, in economic development, our metrics, we do the best we can, but they are, they're necessary, but not sufficient in terms of telling the story, right? They're, they're necessary to communicate to a broader, you know, our board, but at the end of the day, the things that we really would like to measure are very difficult to do so. And I think that's why it's been so important to get kind of a deep dive and then look at new ways of measuring. I mean, I've looked at many, many different models for this and there's a lot of great theoretical models, none of which are very easy to do in any kind of real way. I mean, they sound good, and I, they, I'm sure that there's, you know, a lot of validity to them academically, but in terms of actually capturing the data and getting that done and doing it in a meaningful way. I just have to jump in there because you're right. And the academic in me is saying, yeah, we have to measure different things. But to Doug's point, sometimes people will say, well, how do you really measure vitality? And then I'm like, 
well, let me contemplate that with you. And, you know, all the data says we should be doing that. All the research says that vitality is a key measure of an ecosystem. But none of us have put together a terrific set of metrics that would allow us to say, ooh, this place is more vital and has more vitality than another place. And so to your point, yes, what we've used has stayed in my mind in the past in economic development and what we need has to be measuring more than just those things like capital input, sales, volume, number of jobs, right? And number of businesses. But it's it's still, as to your point, there's a lot of models, but we haven't settled on anything that's really useful yet. So this is what we've settled on. I think it's good, but Andy Stoll, Eric Pages, you, there are others in the field who say, well, we should be doing maybe a little bit of this. Well, but it's good to have, I mean, I think ha- that said, it's good to have some benchmarks and something you can look at year over year. And I appreciate that, you know, that we need to get there. You know, part of making the case for this work is to be able to show things that are measurable and repeatable and all that. So I, I'm definitely of the mindset that the, you know, the more we can do the better. But I guess this is part of my broader point of I just appreciated your approach to talking to so many people because you just really have to get a, you can't really get a flavor of it unless you just talk to so many people. Well, the data's first, but the real value I think in assessing an ecosystem comes from understanding the individuals that are operating within it in any given period of time. And we sample the whole stack. So we interviewed micro enterprises, the teeny tiniest of companies, home-based businesses. We interviewed gig workers. We interviewed small business owners, those who have the restaurants and the, the clothing stores. We interviewed a lot of startup scale-ups. And we interviewed some folks that were engaged in commercializing intellectual property. So we felt like we picked and were able to pull randomly from the entire stack of entrepreneurs throughout the state to have an understanding of the culture and the, the challenges and the gaps and the assets that exist in the state that are there to support them as they build these companies. So we got a little bit about the kind of who we're serving and how you went about it and you know the importance of what we're tracking. So what were some of the things that you learned about Nevada? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I could do this for an hour. You realize that. You know, the first thing that struck us about Nevada is this, and it's very unlike Tennessee, Wyoming, and the other states where we worked. The very first thing that struck us about Nevada was the culture. Went back and did a little, you probably all already know this that are listening to this podcast, but when Nevada was founded, the very first state Congress came together and built the constitution and they voted on everything. And the the goal, apparently, was to make sure that in Nevada, everything that was illegal elsewhere in the country would be legal in Nevada. So boxing, gambling, divorce, prostitution, there were five or six things that were all part of the initial rules and regulations. And the idea was, we're going to do it our way. We're going to do it independently. We have this fiery independence. It took us a lot to get here to this state. And it's going to continue and will be a beacon for independent thought and fiery independence. And it is still in this state. (laughs) It is amazing to me, whether I was in rural Ely or in downtown Reno or in a condo in Las Vegas, that etho penetrates and permeates everyone's value system. And it is probably Nevada's greatest 
asset in this new economy. So that was the first thing we found. Wow. No, I love that. I did, you know, honestly, I didn't know that about the founding. That's so I should have known that. But I do agree with you that that ethos is still very much alive here. Whenever you're trying to describe what it's like here, I'm in, especially in Northern Nevada, I'm like it's kind of that brackish water between the burners and the cowboys. It's just this really interesting mix of sort of libertarian open thought, do it our way. You know, we're kind of barn raising, we're doing it all together. It's kind of a, but you know it when you see it. And it is powerful. It is powerful. It leads people to think and act independently. And it leads people to take risks, some would perceive as risks, in ways that in a staid state like Iowa or Tennessee, those kinds of activities and actions and ideals do not exist in that way. It's very much more risk averse, very much more, it takes time. There's a lot of more integrated and and incremental change that is desired by culturally by most of the folks in those ecosystems. So it's a little softer, warmer, fuzzier, slower. Here, it's faster, sharper, edgier, a little more exciting. And I think that's why Las Vegas became the place that it did. And Reno became the place that it is. So I feel like it's contributed in ways that have been very, very powerful and has the opportunity to contribute in ways that are very, very powerful going forward. It does feel, I mean, obviously I'm not objective at all, but it does feel like that kind of broad mindset does align pretty well with the entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, I generally feel like the rules don't apply to me, even though they they obviously do. <laughs> so I, it does seem like those two things are aligned. That's one thing. I kind of went off on a tangent with that, but it was a big one. It was a big one. You know, I think when we benchmark an ecosystem, we look at a number of things. One thing that we look at are the baseline demographics. We look at the education. We look at the age, average age. We look at access to the internet. Uh, just a five or six key things that we know drive innovation, no matter where you are. And so the more highly educated residents you have, the better off you are, or the more strong your ecosystem tends to be. The more universities you have, the more federal labs you have, the more private sector R&D that occurs, all of those kinds of things play into this. And what we learned in Nevada, first and foremost, for example, in Reno, Reno's four-year bachelor's degree, I think is 34% people in the MSA, 34% of Reno are you Renoites? What are you? You know, <laughs> I should know this, I guess, after being here this long. Well, anyway, so 34%. Those are good numbers. Statewide, I think it's 27%. So it's it's less in other parts of the state, but that turned out to be a really strong asset for the Reno region. In terms of internet, the Mets, the major Mets, both Reno and Las Vegas have pretty terrific internet access. Not everyone takes advantage of it, which is an area that we need to work on. However, just having bandwidth is, we know, a strong driver of economic development and entrepreneurship throughout the stack. So those are things that we saw right away. But then conversely, when we got into rural Nevada, we found that 25, some in some places, 35, 40% of the population in some of our rural communities don't have access to internet or rely solely on cell phone access. And that is probably the biggest barrier to innovation, to entrepreneurship, and frankly, in rural parts of Nevada, to economic development overall. So those are areas where we know that we have terrific need 
And it's being addressed. Brian Mitchell will tell you it's being addressed in the state of Nevada, but it's not fast enough. It's got to happen faster. No, that's great. I mean, you've, you've highlighted a couple of key things. So talk to me a little bit about you know educational attainment. What is, why is that so critical? And how do we fit kind of benchmark us a little bit, kind of put that into perspective? I'm glad to talk about this because it's critically important. So education is important for a lot of reasons. One, a baseline education gives us the ability to function in a community, to contribute at a higher level. The more educated we are, the more likely we are to move up Maslow's hierarchy of need, right? That old thing we all learned in college. But the real issue here is that we need people to be really well-educated so that they can compete in a global economy. The kinds of skills and traits and the ability to learn, the ability to access new technologies, to understand STEM fields, that kind of training, that kind of education is critical in large numbers for our communities to be able to, first of all, foster entrepreneurship, but also foster workforces that our larger corporations rely upon in order to be successful in a global economy. So education is absolutely critical. It is not where it needs to be in Nevada. I think you're, the key point I took from that, which I think is so powerful, is we are competing globally. You know, I think Nevada for many, many years over many cycles, you know, we've had this sort of boom and bust cycle you know, driven a little bit by mining, right? You know, materials, you know, they come and go. And and then now, you know, through hospitality, which is, you know, again, tourism and hospitality, both of those industries weren't necessarily high education attainment industries. You know, they go through these big boom and bust cycles, you know, as what we've seen up here in the North is, a, you know, diversification over the past 10 years, while the world has been changing. And now I think we're starting to take it seriously, more than ever. I mean, we're in the middle of a legislative session and they're working to shore up educational systems across the board. But I I think that we still carry some of that legacy forward with us. I'm really happy to see that our numbers have been improving. But again, your point being, you know, I think we, we benefited a little bit over the many years of people would come here and just leave their money or come here and take our materials and leave their money. But that, to your point, is different in a global economy that's shifting and that's more tech oriented. And so that as the basis, I mean, there's no other reason than that. Let's, let's be clear. When your economy is mostly reliant upon natural resource extraction or agriculture, which are the two key traditional industries in the state of Nevada, you experience the boom and bust, well, outside of hospitality in, in Las Vegas, but you experienced those boom bust cycles. Um, and in the past, we've weathered them. We'd all agree that we got through it. it. People have generations of workers whose families have learned to live through the boom bust cycles. They know, they know they're coming, they know how to experience them. It's part of the cultural history and community history of many of our regions in Nevada. The challenge is in a global economy, disruption is coming faster, it's coming more rapidly, and it's deeper. And with those changes, we may not, first of all, recover as easily from a boom-bust cycle as we have in the past. I give you Las Vegas after the pandemic. In March, their unemployment rate was still at over 5%. And the rest of, it was the highest in the country, and the rest of the country has is seeing way low unemployment rates. And so we're, we're, the recovery is longer, the dive is deeper, and we have the opportunity, we have the resources, we have the assets to address it. And so it's simply diversifying the economy. Reno has done a really good job of that. 
you have, and if you look at the numbers, it was it was very compelling to us. We see that the old, what I would call old economy, forgive me, Doug, the old economy mix of business attraction continues to be very successful in Reno. You've attracted a lot of large companies and you have a list, right? It's something like 175 in the past 10 years or something like that. These are really good numbers, particularly in today's day and age when companies over relied upon manufacturing and advanced manufacturing have been struggling, struggling, struggling. Company communities of similar size to Reno. But at the same time, Reno took the last 10 years to start to support and build an ecosystem around entrepreneurs. So at the same time we saw recruitment working, we also saw spinoffs out of those companies. We saw a lot of startups in the tech space, in industries that we know are new economy industries that are going to create a lot of jobs and are going to be sustainable through 2050 and beyond. That kind of ecosystem building is exactly what's needed across the country. and. I believe in, in many ways, Reno is a poster child for that. My recommendation to you, as you know, is to ramp it up, <laughs> speed it up. We're trying. Yeah. <laughs> I do think your point about, you know, and this is not in any way calling out Las Vegas as much as, you know, if you looked at the Reno and Vegas economy during the Great Recession, it went up and down the same way. And then we started doing a different type of economic development. And then you had another test case for that, which was the, the pandemic. And to your point, you know, Vegas is still coming out of that and Reno bounced back. And the real fundamentally, you know, 10 years ago, our economies looked very similar. Today, they look very different. And I think that there was probably never been a better chart to demonstrate the importance of diversification. Now, I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, across the state inside the governor's office, they've taken on this challenge of diversification. You know, Heather Brown just joined LVGEA in the role of entrepreneurship. So you're starting to see, and there's a lot of good work that's been happening before that with Startup Vegas. But I guess my point being, the numbers don't lie about the diversification that happened in the North and what, what needs to continue to happen statewide to make our, our economy much more resilient. If I can go there for a moment, is that all right? Yeah, go for it. One of the things that we learned about Las Vegas is that in spite of that, there was an organic movement among entrepreneurs to build companies, an influx of people that were coming in from outside of Las Vegas, a lot of community entrepreneurs within Las Vegas who on their own began to build a network, began to start the kinds of, of asset building and networking that's needed to build an ecosystem with what I would call Spartan support from many of the traditional economic development organizations, including the university, LVGEA, community colleges, chambers of commerce and others. And they now are coming to the table in a beautiful way. You know, I've talked a lot about UNLV and Jamie Schwartz and their folks, Heather Brown kind of bridging both the private and the public sector with a startup Las Vegas and now her role at LVGEA. So it's, it's happening. But I think even if they weren't at the table, even if the entrepreneur service organizations didn't come to the table, I believe that the entrepreneurs in the Las Vegas region would have built an ecosystem on their own. It'd be slower and not as effective, but it's underway. I don't think Reno could have done that. So there had to be the ESOs in play for Reno to achieve what it's achieved. Las Vegas just is doing it anyway. 
and there's enough mass and enough people that there's thousands of people that are in that space and they are doing things on their own. So very different dynamics, very different growth trajectories and both very interesting stories that it will end up most likely in very similar places in the next five to seven years. Which is great if you're a, a, an entrepreneur that wants to be in Nevada. Right. I mean, that's, you know, whether you choose to, you know, whether wherever you want to live, I'm happy to see that it's coming together. I mean, you know, having, you know, I just truly believe in the power of entrepreneurship to transform communities and just to see that coming together and, and really starting to take people taking notice. I mean, this, as we're recording this, there's a bill going through the Nevada Assembly, AB 77, which could create an office of, entrepreneur, office of entrepreneurship, which would really solidify the importance of entrepreneurial driven economic development at the state level, which would be amazing. We would start to align support across the state. And even the fact that we're, I mean, you know, having that conversation and we've got a really good shot at it, you know, Assemblyman Steve Yeager, who's the speaker of the assembly has led that and worked closely with a number of different people to support that. I just, the fact that it's even out there speaks volumes because, you know, we haven't really gotten a lot of entrepreneurial supporters at the legislature over the years, just, you know, for no other reason than that, you know, it's just a kind of a something that not everybody pays that close attention to. I think too, it's really important to note that this is happening across the country. This is not just in Nevada. We are at the state level in every single state, realigning some slowly, some quickly, our emphasis on entrepreneurial development. It's long overdue. It's very much needed. And without it, Without that kind of realignment, both with resources, with finances, with culture, training, education, and most importantly, political leadership, trying to execute on the creation and sustainability of ecosystems that support literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of businesses in our states, in each state, is difficult at best and almost impossible without that kind of support. So this was terrific that this got introduced into the legislature this year. And I hope that it passes with flying colors. AB 77 is really, really important for the state. I completely agree with you. And, you know, one of the big opportunities with that is to just measure and track how the state's doing. You know, how can we go back year over year and say, hey, you know, we're doing better without being able to track what we're doing? You know, one of the things that becomes clear is that you see a large employer. I mean, Tesla's a great example in the North. I mean, they hire tens of thousands of people. It's been an enormous success, and that's amazing. It's done a lot to transform the region. That's really easy to point to. How do you point to the hundred, you know, small and medium-sized businesses that, that employ between, you know, 25 and 300 people and say, hey, that's a huge economic impact as well? So you just, the, the fact that they're distributed makes it more difficult to quantify their impact, even though it's a significant impact. And I think that's one of my hopes is that the more that we can elevate the importance of entrepreneurship, people can recognize the contribution of entrepreneurs have in our economy. One of the things that we recommended was the creation of an innovation dashboard in this newly created Office of Entrepreneurship. The idea being that collectively in each of our regions, so Reno, Las Vegas, and in rural communities, we would begin to gather data on a regular basis about jobs, about business starts, about business exits, about new economy jobs, workforce training, all of the kinds of pieces that we know go into ecosystem building and put it into a publicly facing dashboard that would allow us and our peers, our communities, and our political leaders to see 
on an ongoing basis how these economic changes are occurring and where entrepreneurs are contributing. There's also some places like Kansas City that have put together some fairly long-term, what we call longitudinal studies that look at this. Kansas City University of Missouri SourceLink program published a periodical, which we reference in the report, called We Create Jobs. They've done two iterations of this report. They were the first to document the kinds of jobs, the pay scale of these jobs that entrepreneurs were creating throughout the stack and begin to put numbers to it. And it has made a world of difference in their ability to advocate for entrepreneurs and their ability to educate in a way. Many of our political leaders around the value of entrepreneurship as it relates to job creation. And it's important to note that we all know, those of us in this space, that almost all net new jobs are coming from companies under five years old. But if you go on the Hill and you talk to someone at Capitol Hill or you talk to someone at your state legislature and you bring that up, it's likely that it's not some, a number or a statistic that they're familiar with. So part of the value, to your point, of tracking and benchmarking this good work is the idea that we can begin to educate folks about the value of entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think that's such an important stat has to be repeated. All new net jobs come from young companies. So companies under five years of age are creating all the new jobs. I mean, that is net all new net jobs. It's fascinating. So big companies create more jobs. That's a fact. We all know that. Only about 20% of all net, all aggregate jobs are being created by entrepreneurs. But when you take into account all the jobs that our largest companies are shedding and the jobs that we know they're going to shed as automation rolls out over the next decade, the number of net jobs that remain are coming from companies less than five years old. And that is a huge, a huge piece of economic information that we should be paying more attention to. And I think that's, I mean, for those of us who are you know, doing this work for a long time, sometimes you forget we have to come back to the beginning and bring a lot of other people on the journey with us. And so that's one of those key things is just helping to educate people. So what are some of the other key findings that came out for you? Well, we touched on rural. I think I used to be very worried about rural Nevada and all rural regions. We did a lot of work in Wyoming. We've done a lot of work in Tennessee, Missouri, Iowa. And what we kept finding is population loss growing aging populations, these reliance on one or two major industries. And those are all the things that we found here in rural Nevada. But the big difference is that with bandwidth over the past five to seven years, these communities are transforming themselves. What's happening when we get bandwidth into a rural community of, say, 2,000 people is that, first of all, we have local community entrepreneurs that emerge doing business out of their living rooms. We have new businesses that start just because there's access to technology, there's access to resources, sometimes access to capital, which we also need to talk about. And then we also have an influx of new residents to our rural communities who are drawn by the natural resources and the other amenities of rural life and the culture of rural life, who now can work wherever they choose. And if you think about that, all of those things have come together in the last four years. We've had a, a terrific shift in thinking around where and how we work. And we have a lot of people who are of midlife and younger who are choosing where to work. And more often than not, they're choosing places with terrific natural resources. And as I said during another podcast and another interview last week, Nevada stands out across the board. You have high deserts, you have 
skiing, you have waterways, you have, there's so much here. And the beauty of all of that is with bandwidth, this attraction is feeding in other areas already. It's feeding an enormous population flip, which will will turn back this population out migration we've been fighting. It gives our youth an opportunity to come home and create a job versus having to leave because they can't find a job. And it provides brand new energy, brand new revenue for those people that are already doing business in rural communities who can augment those business models with online sales, online services that allow all of our community members to build local wealth. It's just, it's a win-win across the board. And Nevada's poised, except we don't have bandwidth to our rural communities yet. 2026, Brian Mitchell says, he's in charge of OSID. He said, we will have uh, fiber nodes in most every major rural community. So we'll have it in Ely and Elko, and we'll have it in a lot of our our larger three to 5,000 population communities. That's not enough. And just getting it into a node is not enough. We have to get it into every home and business. So the challenge going forward, if, if we want these rural communities to survive, the challenge going forward is twofold. It's getting access with bandwidth and it's digital literacy. It's getting everyone, like, train people to be entrepreneurs, get more services out there through Main Street, through the SBDCs, so that we, we are raising and empowering people to do the thing that Nevada does so well, to be independent and to build companies. And the results are clear in communities like Virginia and Tennessee where they've done this. The results are astronomical. They're just night and day. And Nevada's poised. It's ready. It's waiting. It's just, we have to make it happen. So the biggest thing we learned and what we really are pushing in terms of our recommendations is please, please, please get after the bandwidth, get after the bandwidth, and then come in right behind it with more, better resources and services to get people digitally literate. So it sounds like we need a stopgap, which is a uh, Starlink grant program, so we can get uh, Starlink to communities. Who do we know that might be able to help with that? Let me see. I think we just need to drive 30 minutes away and maybe we'll get an Elon sighting. We'll get some Starlink out here. I think that's brilliant. I, you know, I should have put that in the report. <laughs> you know, I just I was out in rural Nevada, uh, hot springing last week, and we took the Starlink with my kids, my friend Starlink, and it was, we were in the middle of nowhere and it was like they were on their couch at home which was kind of sad because i was hoping to be out in the real middle of nowhere but the point <laughs> for bandwidth is it's amazing it works really well so kind of turning your attention to las vegas like what are some of the things that came up for las vegas i want to make sure that we cover you know the state but let's, let's talk about las vegas and we'll talk about reno Oof, okay so las vegas is such an amazing place the people were unbelievable. The thing that we first saw about the Las Vegas demographics is the amount of diversity. There are people there from virtually every country in the world. There are 14 or 15 languages that are spoken. The array of cultural diversity and the openness to different perspectives, different views, different languages, different cultural norms is it just stands out. It's a terrific asset for Las Vegas, and it's an underutilized asset in ecosystem building. We talk it up. You know, when Dell Gines, we do roundtables. We bring in a, an array of national experts to review our data and our findings and to give us guidance in terms of 
what are we missing? Are there places for those of you that are working in this field right now? So we bring in like 10 dogs. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And we ask them, tell us the hard things. Tell us what we need to do differently. And Del Gines is a, actually, he's an international influencer in this space. He just took a position with the International Economic Development Council. And he is an advocate for diversity and ecosystem building and probably one of the best thought leaders, I think, in the country on this space. And he was all over. If you remember, you were on that. He was, you know, this is, look at the diversity here, but I don't see any accompanying resources to bring those collisions together in Las Vegas so that we can all learn from one another. And, you know, do we have pockets of people that are all white doing things, pockets of people that are just women doing things, pockets of people that are, you know, speak different languages that are doing things on their own? And if so, we're missing an opportunity. And of course, the answer was yes, that's exactly how it is in Las Vegas. So um, when we were there, we, I was fortunate enough to have a guide from the SBDC who took me to a wide array of Latino events, Hispanic events. So I attended a Hispanic fair. I interviewed through a translator, a wide array of Hispanic entrepreneurs, Latino and Latina entrepreneurs. And what we kept finding is there was little knowledge of anything outside those networks. There was little interaction back and forth. So the big finding in Las Vegas was you have amazing assets. Of course, there are lots of other things too, as you know but you need to utilize those assets. And diversity was one. The second thing we learned in Las Vegas is that there were three hubs for entrepreneurial activity. There is the arts district that plays upon Tony Shea's whole innovation vision that was so powerful in the early teens and and faded with his death, I think. And so we have this beautiful district. We have a culture there that's very strong. And in the aftermath of the pandemic, there was a lot of organically driven arts, augmented media, artificial intelligence, different kinds of technology-based innovations that are emerging in that district that could be fostered and grown with some resources, with some specialty programs. And the same can be said of the downtown district and Blackfire Innovation. So we identified three clusters of unique and very promising global innovation hubs that could be exploited with resources, financing, some good leadership and good networking. And I think Las Vegas will blow up. And which is, you did capture the essence of those different districts and then also recognizing that there's not a real coordinated effort to bring together that. And I think that's one of the things that gives, you know, that I'm most excited about. It does seem like there's palpable energy on the ground in Vegas. Like I've never experienced it and just happy to see what will come out of that. So what about Reno? And then we'll kind of close it out with the state at the highest level. Here's what I'd like to talk about Reno, Doug. I was thinking about this earlier. I went once a very long time ago to an auction. And in this auction, there were lots and lots of pieces of furniture. And in one corner was this beautiful oak bookcase. And it was surrounded by a lot of other bookcases, all kind of normal and interesting, but nothing fantastic. But this one bookcase had all the earmarks of a known maker, Stickley, which is a manufacturer back in the day of really super nice furniture. And it even had the stickers on the back and it had the mortise and tenon joints and the cortisone. It was beautiful. But when it was sitting in a room full of five or six other bookcases and other pieces of oak furniture, it was really easy to overlook that really rare item in that pile of, of furniture. 
And so when it went up for sale, there were only a couple people that recognized what it was and it went, you know, it sold pretty high, but not as high as it could. And the person that purchased it actually bought it for a thousand dollars. Not that this matters, but he took it to Southby's and it sold for 15,000 who took it then to New York and it sold for like something close to a million dollars. It was really, really rare. My point being that sometimes what we see and expect to see in a space and the kinds of things that we're looking that are surrounding it jade us to what's in front of us and the assets that exist. It's it's hard sometimes to pick out the beauty and the the real, see the real value and and fabulous nature of furniture or a community or an ecosystem. And I tell that story, I didn't do well, but it's, you get the idea. So in Reno, Reno is amazing. It is a place with four or five incredible assets that locals take for granted because it's normal. When I first spoke with Doug, in fact, you, and we were talking about when I was coming out to Reno to do the site visit, the very first thing he said was, well, yeah, you know, I don't know if you're into powder or not, but you know, the slopes or whatever, whatever. And, and, you know, for somebody in Iowa or Tennessee or Louisiana, having slopes less than 30 minutes away, having 29 resorts, in fact, for skiing less than an hour away from where you live is pretty amazing. Having a river run through your community, having high desert that is hiking and you know the trails and the ballooning and all of the pieces that come along with that, having Burning Man deliver artwork into your public spaces on an annual basis that is globally beautiful, globally famous. All of those pieces together with the culture and the diversity that is Reno offer a terrific experience for entrepreneurs because those are the pieces of ecosystem building. And so we kept finding assets, natural resources, built resources in Midtown, which has just undergone a marvelous renovation. And the resulting space is open. It's green. The array and diversity of businesses there are creative and kind of out there and very exciting and very vibrant. And the the gatherings that are occurring are intimate, but they're powerful. All of those things collectively really make Reno a place like no other. And the people that came that we interviewed, the entrepreneurs that had come to Reno in the last two or three years all said, I mean, to a person, I didn't know what I didn't know. And we kept hearing it and we kept hearing it. And pretty soon when they said it, we were finishing the sentence with them and we would all laugh. It happened round table after round table after round table. And the key here is that the locals, Doug, your team, the people that live in Reno know and understand and appreciate the value of how they live. But I don't think that the folks that are community builders in Reno that have been there a long time understand how remarkable this space is and this culture is, and the assets are as compared to other places in the country. And so our recommendation was build on what you have. You just need a good message. We just need to bring it together, find a good hub or two and talk it up, be the Boulder of the West. Cause that's how Boulder built their ecosystem, which now is one of the best in the world. Reno has everything Boulder does and more. 
I really appreciate you helping, you know, lay that out. I love that story, by the way. And, you know, I think it's really fascinating. It's helpful to walk outside of your community and go to other places, right? Like you don't know. It's just like you said, it's so close to you that it's the water that you're swimming in. So it's hard to appreciate and know what you have sometimes, which I appreciate. That's why it's always good to get outside perspectives. So I, I appreciated that. And I think one of the other things that came out of our conversation too was just, you know, for me, one of the big takeaways for me was how do we empower the next generation of leaders? You know, how do we take, so aggregate dollars and and help support the next generation of ecosystem builders and diversify that throughout the region. So tell the story, bring up the new leaders. I mean, there's a lot more detail in the report that I, I will, you know, we could never cover it all. But, you know, that was one of those that things that has really struck a chord with me. I mean, from the moment we started talking, I started working on this. So I just want to let you know that, you know, the things that you've done not only were, you know, are actionable, but they're being put into action. Can I jump in just really quickly? I know we're running out of time now, Doug, and I I'm, I'm apologize for that. However, one of the things that is in the report, but not very strongly, is that a lot of the ecosystem building that took place over this past decade came from Udon. And it was a dedicated team of three, four individuals, depending upon what period of time we're looking at, who, and Doug led this, who, so I forgive me, but I this is part of the story, who Doug is not afraid of experimentation. And there's some people like him in Las Vegas, which is really exciting. However, launched a seed fund, launched 1 million cups, you know what you did and I, I'll get it wrong. And I know there were a lot of other people involved, but the bottom line is Doug and his team, but Doug in particular is a champion, an ecosystem champion. And in order to move and, and a good one, he's actually been recognized. He won't tell you this, but he's been recognized by the Kauffman foundation of one of the nation's best ecosystem builders by Andy Stroll. And that speaks loud and clear about the value that Doug brings to ecosystem building in this country. He's very well respected, but but here's the thing. We need a lot more dogs. We can't build and grow the Reno ecosystem without 20 or 30 dogs because that's how it works. An ecosystem cannot be built by one person or one organization. And so the goal now, the next phase of Reno's life is in finding, bringing up, holding up a wide array of individuals, women, minorities, people from academia, people from the entrepreneurial community itself, people from education, all, all walks of life who are champions in their own space, who can come together around the ethos of ecosystem building and build with Doug's example. He's been a great role model and he still is. Help to do that same kind of good work, but make it so much bigger and I think, as I've said in the report, I think that coupled with bringing all of the resources of the of various entrepreneur support organizations together and unified, all rowing in the same direction, will move things in an accelerated fashion toward the kinds of economic outcomes that we know Reno can experience. Well, you're always allowed to come on the podcast with that kind of... Uh... <laughs> It's a good thing you did good work because otherwise it would have been a pretty horrifying experience. That would have been a little challenging. No, I really do appreciate the, you know, it's it's weird when you do something for such a long time and then you look back on it. But I, you know, I do really appreciate the insights you provided and the friendship and the advisement and all of that, especially in our, I'm curious, you know, we have the benefit of carrying the flag for this for the entire state. Obviously, I spent a lot of time 
looking at the ground that I'm standing on. So I really appreciate all the, the depth there. So, and I just really appreciate the call out to it and the recognition of the work. It really means a lot to me, especially from you. You, you were doing this work before it was cool. Yeah, when you were a baby. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Not quite that old, but yeah, getting there. So let's close it out with what about the state as a whole, right? I mean, we've gone on this journey. Ecosystems are hyper-local. We've talked a lot about, you know, some of the challenges in the rural and the opportunities. We've talked a little bit about Las Vegas, some of their opportunities, some some details on Reno. We've covered a little bit about the Office of Entrepreneurship of the State, but what did you take from the state as a whole? Like, what can the state do to make Nevada the most entrepreneurial-friendly state in the nation? So we have several recommendations for the state of Nevada that I think are very powerful, and they're critical to the entire state's upward movement. The first is to realign our resources and our thinking in economic development at the state level to be more tilted, as Victor would say, toward entrepreneurship. What that means is that we spend millions of dollars every year in economic development initiatives. We have multiple funds that support entrepreneurs throughout Nevada that are tied to business startup, business attraction, job creation, but they're all focused on the needs of very large corporations. And most of them are focused on the needs of very large corporations. We need to move some of that alignment over to support entrepreneurship. And what that means is in funds like the Knowledge Fund, where the rules are very, very rigid around how those funds are spent, we need to loosen that up. We need to think about public-private partnerships and new programs that can be created through those partnerships like venture studios. We need to address at the state level a profound gap in capital access at the pre-seed and the late research stage um, levels in Nevada. And that can only happen at the state level. We don't have the resources locally, nor the sustainability locally to do that. So those are two really key areas. We need to think about readjusting our policy, and we need to think about pushing money toward key areas in the capital spectrum where we identified incredibly critical early stage entrepreneurship activity. This is what we would call MVP or pre-seed. And then prior to that, at the university level or the research level um, in our federal labs like DRI, we need to address some late gaps there. We also have some odd things happening with angel capital in the state of Nevada that need to be addressed. I'm not sure it has to happen at the state level, Doug, but I think it needs to happen. And so how we get new funds into the state, how we make competitive new funds roll out into Vegas and into Reno and into rural is really tied, I think, to state level policy. We did not make recommendations for how exactly that should happen because in both Las Vegas and in Reno, there is work underway already among key people to address that. So it felt as though that's already being addressed, at least at the level um, that it needs to be. So we didn't feel like the energy we would spend to try to fix it or address it was there. Yeah, but it's such an important point. I mean, we, you know, at one point, the Reno Seed Fund was the most active fund in the state, which on one hand, we're like, oh, you know, yay, congratulations. And then on the other hand, we're like, it's a $3 million fund. Wow. That isn't great for the state of Nevada. Like, we have some work to do. Yeah, we have some work to do. And, you know, just Karsten and the good work that GoEd's doing, I mean, there there is new opportunity with SSPCI. That said, you know, I think that people, this is goes back to the importance of understanding how all this fits together and why we need to tilt government 
back to support entrepreneurs and not just the, the large businesses. Okay, so, and this is really important. We ran across some licensing issues in the state of Nevada where for a person starting a business, there were a lot of barriers to getting that business up and running in terms of public policy, in terms of licensing and registration of businesses. And there's a lot of good work being done at the Secretary of State's office to try to address that with the new Secretary of State, um, Cisco, that came in. We've had multiple interviews with them. They are committed, but they are under-resourced. And so we really feel as though this licensing issue, which is, it's a very bureaucratic process that requires multiple registrations for every business at the state, county, and local level, and navigating an array of very difficult to navigate resources in order to do so. It's also kind of expensive, frankly, if you want to know my opinion. So addressing those things is a priority for making, as Victor Wang would say, making the startup experience frictionless under the right to start movement. And so I can't really get off today without saying that really does need to be addressed and should be a priority along with our realignment of public policy and our access to capital needs. I'm just going to say we need to start printing bumper stickers that say, fix silver flume, fix silver flume. (laughs) I know a lot of people that'll buy them. And I know that Cisco is amazing. I mean, he's an entrepreneur in his own right. And I know he has a plan to fix that you know, we are losing ground to other states and there's such an opportunity there. And I really support what he's doing and I, but he needs the support. It is broken. Let's be clear. Silver Flume needs a lot of work. And it was really innovative when Ross Miller did it 12, 15 years ago, but technology shifted a lot since then. So it is definitely in need. Just, you know, and one last thing around the state. I mean, what about tech transfer? I mean, there was a big recommendation there about kind of centralizing tech transfer This is one of those things that I really appreciate our great universities, and also it feels like there's a lot more opportunity there than has really been taken advantage of. So tell me a little bit about kind of the idea of consolidating tech transfer. We talk a lot about how at the top of the entrepreneurial stack, there's a group of entrepreneurs who emerge out of intellectual property, typically from universities, federal labs, or private sector R&D. In my role at the university, I was in charge of fostering that pipeline of innovative activities that were protected and getting them commercialized and into the economy. And in Nevada, the array of research institutions, including DRI, Desert Research Institute, the University of Reno, the University of Las Vegas, and the private sector R&D that's underway and and, uh, has intellectual property emerging, has terrific potential And when we started digging into, well, let's look at the resources, let's look at the companies that are emerging from this, the pipeline was clearly broken. There were not a lot of companies that are emerging from intellectual property in the state of Nevada. Moreover, a lot of the licensing that is occurring is not publicly, people are not publicly aware that it's being licensed, and it should be, and it's not being licensed in the state of Nevada, which deprives the state of Nevada of terrific globally oriented company development and growth, kind of like bringing, you know, Elon Musk's ventures into Nevada. We're creating them in the lab and in the desk and in the workplace in these three institutions. And yet when it comes time to commercialize them and grow those companies, the licenses are going outside the state. So we had some issues. I believe that the pipeline needs to be more streamlined. 
We need to make it faster and easier for entrepreneurs to access the innovations that are ready for licensure. We need to do a better job of brokering those agreements so that we have more startups and more existing businesses in Nevada that can take advantage of licensure to expand existing businesses or create new product lines or new services or new operations in companies that already are in our state. And that process requires coordination between the universities, between the Board of Regents, and in between existing businesses and our economic development organizations. And for the most part, those four entities don't speak the same language, have the same culture, or have the same goals and objectives. And so we need to rise those boats by delivering a more unified vision for how we can utilize technology transfer in the state of Nevada. And I think what we'll see as many as two or three new licenses a year in the state, which doesn't sound like a lot, but each of these companies, they're not shoe stores, they're more like cures for cancer. They are um, improvements to our, our water systems that have profound impact, could have profound impact on not only the big problems that we're facing right now in the world, but also the economy where these companies are cited. So it's a big opportunity. It's a big challenge because we're dealing with culture shift. We're dealing with the need for resources. We're dealing with processes that need to be put together and then done in unison with other agencies that aren't used to working together. I'm with you. As you, you know, as I read that, I thought, wow, we're going to, A, our team is going to have to get trained on how to think about technology licensing, number one. So that's, you know, the culture between, you know, a nimble, small nonprofit and a behemoth university system very different. But the opportunity is there. I, I had dinner last Friday with the CEO of Nevada Nano, which was a, one of the original spinouts. And, you know, it's taken them some time to find their footing, but they're killing it. And it was amazing technology. And it was actually an investment done long, long ago to bring in entrepreneurial professors. I think that it was a little done before its time, but now, you know, you're starting to see that that is bearing fruit. And just wait to see more of that. One small thing that the state could do at both UNR and UNLV is to embed into the tenure track process for their faculty that if they patent something, if they start a company, that it, it, it applies toward their tenure track process. That's pretty common elsewhere in the country, but neither university has that embedded into the tenure track process here. And it's a simple change that can result in more incentivization among our faculty to commercialize the things that they're creating. So really just create, and I know that they've worked on this maybe at the regent level potentially, but also how do we bring that, where does the rubber meet the road, right? At the end of the day, that has to go, it has to filter its way through the university system. And I know that Myrtle's been doing some good work on that, but again, I think it just goes to show he's been working on that for a long time how things, how long it takes for these things. So, I mean, I mean, we just barely scratched the surface of this. And I know we could talk for hours. You know, I don't want to lose anybody. Well, I don't want to lose any more people <laughs> unless they really care. You know, you have to really be a diehard to make it all the way to the end of this one. But this is, we put all the good, the meat at the end. But Mo, I just, honestly, I just cannot thank you enough for everything you've done for the state. I mean, A, I, I just really enjoy getting to know you personally. We've had a lot of fun together. I really consider you a, a friend and a peer and a mentor. I, you're on my short list of people to call now if I have 
thoughts and questions. And um, I just really appreciate you putting so much of your energy to towards helping me and my, you know, my fellow colleagues making Nevada a great place to be. It just really means a lot to me. Well, thank you. It's been a terrific experience. And I want to note that Doug did not stay in Reno. So even when we went to Vegas and we started our interviews there, he did a road trip with his staff and came down and went on some visits with us and interviewed people and opened doors and created an environment that was so much more, was just so much better for us to be on. You know, oftentimes people will say, well, you're, you're an outsider. You don't understand us. You don't know us. And so there's not a lot of value in what you bring to the table. And which is true of consulting, by the way, but what Doug did was open doors and his team opened doors and what we were able to bring was in many ways, a fresh perspective to some really interesting activity that was happening in the state. So I'm, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to have been a part of this and to, to have met all of you. And like I said, we interviewed close to 300 people and those experiences are going to stay with all of us. And what we learned here will be part and parcel of what we share with others in other states. So Nevada's giving back already in terms of the kinds of best practices that are already underway here will be incorporated into best practices, we hope, that are coming down the road. And we're all, as a country, we're all going to move forward. We're all going to be lifted. And that's the goal. What a great way to close it out. I mean, I think that is, you know, it started with the Startup America partnership. It's been going on for a long time with limited success. But I think people are starting to finally connect and see like this is what makes America great in many ways. I mean, that the myth of or the entrepreneurial ethos is part of this country. And um, yeah, well, you are such an amazing person, Mo. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Until next time, which won't be very long, I've got plenty of things to talk to you about, but thank you for coming on. Thank you. Take care, Doug.